Uh, let's go ahead and look at the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Would you join me now in prayer? Father in heaven, we want to thank you once again for gathering your people here this morning in anticipation of the day when we will gather with saints from every time and age and place around your throne. Uh, Lord, we, we know that that's only possible not because we were righteous or because we were smart or figured it out or because we had a lot of money or because of anything in ourselves, but only because of the death of Christ. Thank you for sending him into the world. Jesus, thank you for laying aside the wealth and riches of heaven and the glory that you enjoyed to experience humiliation and be born in poverty, to suffer, and finally to die in place of sinners, a death you did not deserve, and to earn for us forgiveness. God, this is everything. It affects every part of who we are, and so we want to thank you for your great plan to save us as your people. Lord, I pray that you would sustain James and Janelle Smith right now as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I pray that you would remind them of these truths, that they are bought with a price and that you... Uh, love them as your children, and I pray uh, that you would work a mighty work in James's life, either by healing him uh, and bringing him back to health, or uh, by uh, showing him yourself and, and causing him to walk into your presence in a way that brings you glory and brings him unspeakable joy. Lord, I pray uh, that you would open up your truth to us this morning as we examine your word and consider the the deep and, and, and uh, uh, mysterious and wonderful truths uh, surrounding the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think if we were to take a straw poll today, we would learn that Christmas is probably most people's favorite holiday. I think that's fair to say. We love our Christmas music. We love our Christmas cookies. We enjoy uh, our Christmas lights. We like our Hallmark Hall of Fame Christmas movies. We like a day or two to sit at home and just eat and be with family. And with how much everyone likes Christmas, I find it ironic that the central event we celebrate on December 25th has historically been one of the most maligned 
and misunderstood doctrines of the Christian faith. The idea that the Son of God became a man, that that he became flesh, has always been either hated as a dangerous teaching or, in many cases, just dismissed as sort of religious superstition and stupidity. In fact, even the apostles themselves from earliest times found uh, themselves contending for the doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God, the doctrine that that God the Son became a man uh, against an onslaught, a false teaching that denied that the only begotten God had become fully human. Uh, John complains of this very thing in 2 John verse 7. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. In other words, you might say that actually one of the earliest threats to the early church was an assault on Christmas. It was an an assault on the doctrine of the Incarnation. It, It was unfashionable and unfathomable to ancient people that a God might condescend to take upon himself a human nature. I mean, that was just, that blew people's minds in the ancient world. For many people, the physical world and the human body were considered inherently dirty and inferior and, and, uh, and, and, and wicked and wrong and even evil. They believed that spiritual things are pure, but that physical things cannot be pure. And so for them, the idea that God himself, the creator, could come into the world and take on the flesh of a human being was just reprehensible. So the Docetists, for example, they surmised the Son of God actually only seemed to be a human being so that the disciples could uh, see him and perceive and hear him. Uh, Adoptionists maintain that the Son of God sort of borrowed the body of the human Jesus at his baptism and then left it just before he died. Uh, But from the beginning, the apostles and those who'd follow in their steps were unanimous and even ferocious in their defense of the incarnation. They recognize that there's no hope of salvation for us unless Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, who, like many others, would be martyred for his faith, would ask this. He said, if, as some unbelievers say, he suffered in appearance only... Why am I in chains? And why do I fight with wild beasts? If that is the case, I die for no reason. Irenaeus of Lyon called out the false teachers in a similar fashion. He said, how can they be saved unless it was God who worked out their salvation upon earth? Or how shall man pass into God unless God has first passed into man? They recognized the importance of this doctrine. These were not egg-headed academics poring over scrolls in a library, but pastors living every single day with the threat of persecution and death. Most of them died violently because of their faith. Why is it that the doctrine of the incarnation, this thing that we celebrate, the birth of Jesus Christ, why is it that this doctrine was so important to them? Why did they fight so vigorously for these truths and even die for them? 
It's because they recognize the stakes laid out for us in the, in, in, in the Bible. In a passage like the one that we just read, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to. It had to be that way. It was necessary. It had to happen. If it didn't, we could not be saved. If he were only partly human, then humans could only partly enjoy salvation, which is to say we could finally and ultimately not enjoy salvation at all. This morning, I'd like for us to consider this mystery again and to ask the question, why did the Word become flesh? Last week, we observed the reality from the Scripture that one of the reasons that Jesus became a man is because he it was in order to live for us, to be that obedient Excuse me, that obedient son, the second Adam who fulfilled the demands of the covenant on behalf of all those who are united to him. And today, we're going to give a second answer that, to that question. Why did the word become flesh? To die for us. To die for us. Jesus' death was part of the plan. Part of the eternal counsels of the Trinity from the very beginning. And just like last week, it's really, it's just a short phrase and it's really simple to say. But when you begin to kind of pick it apart and, start and try to understand what does it actually mean to say that Jesus became a man in order to die for us. It gets a little more difficult. I mean, we don't, uh, I mean, here's somebody who lived thousands of years ago. He died on a cross. And we're asking the question, what does that have to do with me? I mean, you could say that about thousands of people in the Roman Empire. Crosses dotted hillsides all around the known world. And we don't imagine any of those deaths have any impact on us. Why this one? Why the death of Jesus? In fact, why, what, what did Jesus actually accomplish and why was it so important? Well, the passage before us offers four great objectives. Four things that Jesus set out to do when he came to die for us. First of all, notice with me that Christ died for us to annihilate the devil. Christ died for us to annihilate the devil. He became flesh and blood, according to verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, it's very important for us to remember that God's plan... For the world involves the entirety of creation, including that dimension that lies beyond our perception and our experience. I mean, we don't easily, immediately see and perceive these things. There are spiritual beings, countless numbers of them, creatures who are not limited by the physical realm as we are, that are actually morally responsible to God. Some of them serve God faithfully as they were created to do, and others have fallen away from their created purpose and oppose the work and worship of God in any way that they can. And chief among them is this evil being mentioned here in verse 14. It's the devil. He is called the devil. Revelation 12 and 20 uh, make clear to us that this very same person mentioned in this verse is also known as the, uh, excuse me, as, known as Satan or the, uh, the dragon or the ancient serpent who enticed Eve to disobey God's commands. And in our modern world, we live under the illusion that, uh, you know, this is kind of a silly thing. See, we, we tend in our world to think that existence is merely physical. 
that the atoms and the molecules that make up the physical universe constitute the entirety of all that exists, and all this talk about spirits and Satan and the devil and angels and things like that, that's just kind of superstition. That's not really real. And what you need to understand is that the devil and the powers who join him in his evil work, uh, they are very intelligent beings. They operate strategically. They are not cartoonish like we so often see them portrayed in popular media. Uh, they scheme. And so depending on the circumstance, it might be very much to their advantage that you think they don't really exist. They don't care whether you acknowledge their presence. They have a single objective. They want to destroy human beings. Why? Because human beings bear the image of God. And notice what our writer tells us. He actually has had, this guy, Satan, the devil, he has had the power of death. What that means, it's not, there are a couple different words for power in the New Testament. It's not as though Satan is like the only person who can kill people. I mean, God kills people. We're told that in the Bible. Human beings can kill people. We know that that happens. No, it's more like, uh, might or, or, or strength or dominion or reign. It's, it's as though uh, Satan has, in the sense, ruled over the world in a dominion of death. It's like a reign of death. And this has been the, the case in the world for, uh, for years. It's been that way since the beginning. Uh, Satan came and he deceived us. And as a result, death reigns. And Satan has always tried to maintain this state of affairs because he wants to destroy the, the image of God. And what this verse is telling us is that the devil ended up actually securing his own destruction because the very thing that he longed for the most, the death of the one who perfectly bears the image of God as the ideal human being, the, the thing that Satan wanted more than anything, when he finally got it, it was the thing that destroyed him altogether. We see this in the gospel. Satan is the one who gives Judas the idea to betray Jesus. You can see that in, I think, three out of the four gospels. He wants Jesus dead more than anything, but the death of Jesus ends up being the thing that destroys him. Uh, for example, uh, C.S. Lewis in his very popular book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, many of you have read this book. Uh, it's a children's book, really good read, and he does a decent job of illustrating this. Uh, one of the main characters in the book, a boy called Edmund, uh, he betrays his friends and he uh, earns uh, within the kind of justice system of this fantasy world, earns a sentence of death and kind of uh, ends up being enslaved to the devil. Uh, I'm sorry, to the, to the white witch, who is uh, kind of a picture of the devil. Um, but when Aslan offers himself in Edmund's place, she, she can't resist because for her to be able to kill Aslan is just like such an obsession that she fails to see how it will end up destroying her altogether and she deceives herself. Uh, now, uh, that, that illustration, it breaks down in a couple of places, but I think it's a, a powerful and, and similar reminder of what our writer is saying about Satan. Satan loves to murder. He loves to kill. He especially desires to murder the perfect son of God. But through that death, the death he desired more than any other, he loses all power and authority. Now, we're, we're going to see exactly how that comes about in a moment, like what is the operation that causes Satan to be defeated by the death of Jesus Christ? We'll see that in just a moment. But 
because the Son of God is fully human, because the Word came in the flesh, because of what we celebrate at Christmas time, his death actually breaks the power of Satan over all of humanity. We say, okay, so what? I mean, what does that have to do with me? Well, in the first place, I think it's very important for us to recognize and to, to worship the Savior as the victorious warrior who defeated all of his greatest enemies. He is the quintessential hero who bears the sword against the spiritual powers, and as such, he deserves our loud and frequent praise. Like, we need to worship God as the God who defeats the devil. We, this is all over the place in the New Testament. Think about it this way. Uh, a couple of generations ago, Americans, joining with their allies, stormed the beaches of Normandy and then uh, ran rampant across the continent of Europe and totally defeated the Axis powers uh, in World War II. They drove them from the hedges in the forests of Western Europe. Uh, Hitler killed himself. He was destroyed. His ideologies were shown to be wicked and abhorrent, and their victory was absolutely complete. Now, we don't have to live with that threat anymore. But does the victory, the, the completeness of the victory... The fact that, that not a, a single Nazi plane flew over to the United States and bombed us, does that make us any less willing to remember the great sacrifices of these great men? I mean, does it make it like, oh, who cares? It doesn't affect us anymore. No, it makes us like really thankful. Like we want to remember what they did because they made such a huge sacrifice. And so we think about it often. We're, we're all the more grateful to them. We honor their sacrifice all the more. But, but friends, this is kind of what happens with the, in the spiritual realm. I mean, we walk around and in many ways so free from the power of the devil that we, we, we don't fully appreciate just what Christ has done. We don't fully embrace and understand the level to which his victory has, has just uh, spread out in every d direction. And, and should his completeness, the completeness of that victory, make us any less willing to praise the Father for the work of the Son? No, it should make us praise him all the more. No, and, and if you read the New Testament carefully, this is the tone set by the apostles. I mean, go through your New Testament, and as you're reading in your, your Bible reading plan or whatever... Uh, make note of all the times when New Testament writers observe that Jesus Christ gained the victory over the spiritual powers in Satan. I mean, it is all over the place. This is a reason for praise that Jesus and his saints have, have wrought this victory over the serpent and crushed him under the feet of Christ. He is, he's made an open mockery of the devil on the cross. We must praise him as the victorious warrior, but in the second place, we shouldn't be deceived. I know many of you, quite frankly, uh, just in all reality, are being oppressed and lied to, even now by the enemy or one of his deputies. He has no authority, he has no real power, but he still fights desperately. He still stalks us like a hungry lion. He still whispers his lies in our ears. And what this passage reminds us 
is that through the death of Christ, his power is broken. And, and I would go on to say that to preach the death of Jesus, to remember the cross of Jesus Christ, is one of the greatest weapons that you have in your arsenal to fight against the lies of the enemy. Like, it is important to remember that Jesus died for us because this is the truth, this is the key that unlocks our victory in the here and now. What I mean is that if you're suffering from anxiety or in the throes of temptation or your family is under a black cloud or whatever it is, and you assume that your problems are merely a psychological disorder or a lack of money, or some kind of mental chemical imbalance, or if you take counsel and advice merely from those who scoff at spiritual realities, if you try to medicate these issues away, and they are in fact rooted in some oppression of the enemy, then what you're, what you're going to do is you may get some temporary relief, but you won't be addressing the root issue that you need to address, which is only solved by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's true, there are all kinds of reasons why you may be suffering, and I don't mean to imply that it is immoral or wrong to seek relief from mental or emotional anguish. Go do that and, and find that relief. It's important. But don't be distracted from addressing what may be the real root cause of the thing that you're dealing with. Is it possible that in some way you've been listening to the lies of Satan and he's been using this illegitimate authority that he doesn't actually possess anymore to hold you in that suffering, to hold you in that temptation, to hold you in that besetting sin. Pray for discernment. Remember to tell yourself the truth. The word of God became flesh to die for us so that through death he might destroy the one who has death's power. It is this truth that enables us to fight, to pull down strongholds, to wrestle and resist the darts of Satan in the authority of the risen Jesus Christ. And we must address these spiritual matters in addition to finding relief in, in other things. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Why did the word become flesh? To die for us and thereby annihilate the devil. But secondly, consider with me that Christ died for us to emancipate the slaves. Christ died for us to emancipate the slaves. Uh, this is what he says in verse 15. He did so to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, I realize in our context in, in today's day and age, uh, it's very hard for us to understand the meaning and the significance of slavery. I mean, think about it. None of us, as far as I know, have ever been enslaved, and most of us don't even know anyone who's been enslaved. We're cushioned from this reality. And, and because of the fact that we don't have any experience with this, and, and very few of us even know anybody who has experience with this, we kind of, uh, the, the, the idea of slavery has become almost like a dead metaphor. You know, I was slaving in the kitchen the other day. Um, uh, my boss, he's such a slave driver, you know, that sort of thing. But when slavery is mentioned in scripture, you understand this is not a foreign concept to the readers of Scripture, the first readers of, of this book. Uh, slavery was something that they lived with and, and was very much a part of their existence and their everyday life. Some of the members of the church that was reading this document first may have been, probably were, slaves themselves. So our writer 
isn't being flippant or insensitive when he says that we are enslaved to the power uh, to the fear of death. He's saying that in a very real, very serious way, human beings have been subject to lifelong slavery because they've been controlled against their will by this idea that they are so afraid and so terrified by the, by the specter of death. Uh, and isn't that the case? Adam and Eve sinned. The curse fell upon them and their children, and every part of their life was immediately infected by the reality of their coming death. Their bodies began to break down. All their decisions were oriented and shaped in some way or another by the fact that they were going to die. And what's very enslaving about that is that apart from Christ, death is absolutely an unmitigated tragedy. It is final. It is full. Physical death's only part of it. The real danger is separation from God, eternal punishment in hell, the second death. But I want you to know that one of the reasons why Jesus came into the world is to free believers in Christ from the fear of death. He wants to free us from the fear of death. And I just want to make something really clear. Jesus' death guarantees absolutely that no one, no one who comes to him in genuine faith will experience final judgment in hell. Like, it's not going to happen. Never. Uh, all those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be rescued from death. Every single one will be raised to live forever with God in the new creation. And let me tell you something else. God does not intend you to, be any, to have any doubts about whether that's true in your case. Like he wants you to know. He wants you to be sure about it. He doesn't want you to have to wait till after death to find out if you made it or not. And I say that because many professing believers, they go through life hoping they're safe. But they don't know that they're safe. Like how can you say, think about that, how can you say that you've been delivered from the fear of death if you might even if there's a small chance you might die and experience the eternal judgment of God. I would still have fear of death in that case. I don't want to die. There are Christian denominations that have historically taught that you can be in Christ and then decide later on to give it all up and you lose it all. It, they teach it's possible to have salvation, then lose it later on. Many preachers preach this. Even people in our city, brothers that I love very much, and I think they're sincere. I think they believe that the Bible teaches that, and there are some passages that seem to say that when you look at them just on their own. But that kind of preaching is really harmful because it leaves you enslaved to the fear of death. That's not the kind of faith that's described in the New Testament. God does not want you to be enslaved to the fear of death. Later on, our writer tells us uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Then he explains this. He says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek after him. So think about this. True faith involves believing that God is going to welcome those who seek him. Meaning, I'm seeking God, so I believe, because this is part of what true faith involves, I believe I'm going to get him. 
Like it's not uncertain. That's what true faith involves. John, in another place, says he writes this so that people might know that they have eternal life. He wants you to know, not wonder, not hope so. No. He wants you to be so confident that you belong to him and that nobody is going to take you away. He says, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 10, I know my own. And nobody's going to be able to pluck them out of my hands like I've got you. You know how a lot of Christians live? They live in the fear of death. They hedge their bets. Right? And we've all been there to one degree or another. We say, just in case, I'm going to make a profession of faith. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to go to church. That way, if I die, I'm all set. But in the meantime, what if that's all malarkey? What if, what if I am wrong about that? I need to make sure I'm getting a little bit of fun and enjoyment out of this life too. And yeah, I'll make it some good, clean fun, or at least we'll try to. And unless I have to sin in order to get what I really, really want, hedging our bets. What if we had the kind of faith where we were so unafraid to die that we died to self right now? That other stuff isn't faith. It's not part of what the New Testament describes as faith. You know what it is? It's risk management. It's just saying, I'm going to make sure that I'm covered either way. And that's not the kind of thing that God wants for you. He wants you to be free, unshackled from the fear of death. The Son of God became a man so that he might die in place of sinners. And the Bible is clear that if you put your trust in him, if you receive him, if you believe in his name, then you can be sure that death will not have the final say. You can be sure that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so will you. And you can know that you will live with him forever in the new creation. And it is for sure. The word became flesh to die for us. Christ died for us to annihilate the devil and to emancipate the slaves. But in the third place, notice with me that Christ died for us to propitiate the Father. Christ died for us to propitiate the Father. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Here our writer is sort of restating and reframing a key truth from the context. He's saying, uh, he's already said Jesus is so much better than the angels, and he's come for a, a little while lower than the angels because he was on a mission to save human beings in order that we might live uh, with God forever. And, and so he kind of references to Isaiah 41 in that verse, and then he gets to verse 17. How does that help come? How does he help the children of Abraham? How does he help human beings like you and me? How, how does any of this work for that matter? How is it possible that Christ's death defeats the devil and frees the slaves? Verse 17 is going to tell us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You say, whoa. <laughs> propitiation. Propitiation. That's five syllables. Like, imagine bringing that up in the break room, you know, at work. Like, what did you do this weekend? Well, we considered the realities of propitiation. Just walk away. <laughs> you know, what? <laughs> what is propitiation? What is this word? It's actually a very important word 
that describes something that is so central to the work of Christ on the cross. What is this verse telling us? Well, think about the character of God and his plans for the world. God made each one of us for a reason. He made each one of us for a purpose. And he, we're made to reflect his character, represent him in the world. He shows us very clearly in Scripture what that looks like, what he expects human beings to do and the way he expects us to live. But then, plot twist, none of us do it. None of us fulfill the purpose for which we are created. We all fall short. We all stray from the path. We break God's commands, not because we dropped the ball or because we messed up a little bit or because we got ourselves 99% of the way there, but then we're just that little 1% we were missing. No, because we chose in our heart of hearts to say no to God and put ourselves on the throne. This is a problem. So what that means is our real problem is not the fear of death. Our real problem is not even that Satan is, has the power of death. Our real problem, the, the real root problem, is that we were made by God to fulfill a purpose, and we have set ourselves up in direct opposition to that purpose. Our problem is not mainly with ourselves or mainly between us and Satan. The main problem is between us and God. And so, in other words, our problem is that we are at odds with the God of the universe, and what verse 17 is saying is that the Son of God became a man in order to die for us so that he might address that problem. So that he might, because if we don't, if we don't get that problem fixed, we're done. So here's what Christ does. He offers himself to the Father as a spotless sacrifice in place of sinners, so that the righteous, burning, infinite wrath and justice of God falls on him instead of on us. Now, this is hard for us to accept because our culture kind of teaches us, and we've taught ourselves, to think about the universe as if human beings are at the center of it. And, and what the Bible teaches us is that's not true. God is at the center of the universe. God is the one who made it for himself. And so if God is not satisfied, if God's wrath and justice have not been met, if his demands have not been satisfied, then we cannot be saved. We do not worship a God that just sappily, desperately wants to be in relationship with us so much that he will change his righteous and holy character in order to have us in his family. That's not the way it is. But God's wise. He's merciful. And he enacted a plan whereby his justice could be satisfied and his people rescued. The Father sent the Son into the world in order to take the place of sinners and bear the punishment that we deserve, to drink the cup of the burning wrath of God towards sin, to die the death that Adam earned, to feel the weight of the curse of sin so that there might be nothing left for those who are in him. So what that means is all this wrath and all this anger and all this punishment and all this justice stored up against sin gets poured out instead of where it was earned. It's poured out on Jesus. That's propitiation. Jesus satisfied the wrath and the righteous demand of God, the paying of a debt, the placation of holy anger. And do you see now why the truth at the heart of Christmas is so important? Because 
the, the one whose justice, God is the one whose justice was offended. God is the one who has been sinned against. So it is only God who can forgive. It is only God who can let that go. But the problem is that we human beings are the ones who committed the sin, and therefore justice requires that only a human being can pay the debt. And so what happens is the only way that this could happen is if God himself becomes man, fully man, because the punishment must fall upon a man. If Jesus is only partly man, like this God-man hybrid mixed together, then only part of us can be saved. If he's God merely clothed with a human body, then only our bodies can be saved. Our souls remain condemned. But no, the Bible teaches that he became 100% man. So that when he died, he took it all. Because of Christmas, because Jesus is God in the flesh, the God-man, then his sacrifice was complete and efficacious. So that when we, who are one with Christ, we who believe in him, stand before the bar of God, and we are in the dock, and those charges are read, and the sentence is pronounced, the judge of all the earth can righteously say, this sentence was already carried out in the body of Jesus. Like, it's done. There is no more punishment left for you to pay. Our sin condemns us, it places us squarely in the crosshairs of the wrath of a holy God, but that wrath was already poured out on Jesus so that there is nothing left. This is why we can say that we've been emancipated from the fear of death because death is no longer something we should be afraid of because it's not a punishment. It's not the end anymore because Jesus took that death in his own body. This is why we can say that the power of the devil has been broken because any legal claim he had over us, any accusations he could fling at us, they just don't, they don't land anywhere because all of those accusations have already fallen on Christ. The Son of God became a man and died for us so that he might propitiate the Father. And that's at the center of it all. Christ died for us to annihilate the devil to emancipate the slaves, to propitiate the Father. But in the fourth place, notice with me, Christ died for us to invigorate the weary. To invigorate the weary. Look at verse 18. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here, our, our writer sort of brings it home to us. You see, our first, the first readers of this letter, we don't know a lot about them. But we do know that whatever they were facing uh, was tempting them to actually sort of give up on Jesus. Life was hard. They were suffering for their faith. They were growing weary and waiting for the return of Jesus. They were tired. They were tempted to stop gathering. They were tempted to grow bitter and angry toward one another. They were tempted to go back and take an easier path by abandoning the gospel and returning to a former way of life. And what this verse and the entire letter to the Hebrews reminds us is that because Christ suffered and died as a man, he is uniquely able through his death to strengthen believers so that we do not give up but continue on in the way that God has called us to, to walk. This morning, if you're a believer in Jesus and for one reason or another, you are tempted to give up. You're tempted to throw in the towel. I wonder if you need to remember what Christ has accomplished in his death. Like, I wonder if you need to take some time this week, today, whenever, to truly meditate on the fact that God does not have any intention of punishing you because all of that punishment has already fallen on the body of the Lord Jesus. 
Like if you really need to let that sink in a little bit. That there's not the tiniest bit of animosity towards you. Not the tiniest bit of regret that he has forgiven you. Not the tiniest bit of bitterness or vengefulness. There is no punishment left. So that means that even when the day comes for you to reckon with the things that you have done, you do not have to be afraid. You can be free from the fear of death. And it also means that the one who has the power of death is being destroyed. I don't know about you, but these types of things, they help me. They help me to keep going when I'm being tempted, when I'm being tested, and when I'm being tried. They energize me not to give up, but to keep believing, to keep going back to God and resting in his forgiveness, to keep striving together with the people of God for the faith of the gospel. You know, just do better, do better, do better, do better. That doesn't help me. Jesus already took your punishment in, in, in place of you. That helps me. That energizes me. And friends, this is why Christ came. He came to die for us, to die for us so that he might annihilate the devil, that he might emancipate the slaves, that he might propitiate the father, that he might invigorate the weary. And so I wonder if, if you know the words of the song, I, I would just invite you to sing them with me. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. O'er us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Through death into life everlasting, you have already passed. And Father, it's our hope and our not, it's our conviction that we will follow you there. God, if there is any, any person in this room who just doesn't know what's going to happen when he or she dies, I pray that you would send your spirit and cause them to see, cause them to understand, and enable them to believe. I pray that today would be the day they get this question settled. And Father, for those of us who are tempted and tried. That's every one of us. Thank you for helping us. And I pray that you would cause us today and the rest of this week to remember that Christ died for us. And therefore, the condemnation and the anger and the justice and the sentence of death has already been carried out and there's no more punishment left. Lord, help us to walk in that truth and to live in light of it today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.